dwell again is my desire that uh, the Lord Jesus be um, lifted up in our midst here this evening. This morning, in my devotions, I read this phrase from Psalm 82 and verse 1, and uh, it impacted me uh, quite strongly. That God stands in the congregation of the mighty. And uh, I would like to think of you as those that are mighty in the Lord. And, uh, uh, and it was just, uh, again, a reassurance to me, uh, and I needed that, uh, that, that God stands here in this congregation. He is here. And that's, that's what makes the difference between this being a social meeting and, and a worship service. It's, it's really the presence of the Lord. Uh, tonight, I'm, I'm focusing, as you notice, on only two verses from Romans chapter 12 and verses 1 and 2. And I'm sure that you're acquainted with these verses. And, and I'm entitling my message, A Call to Total Consecration. The, uh, before I attempt to give exposition to this, these uh, first two verses of uh, Romans 12, uh, allow me to notice that the Apostle Paul ends his overview of, the, of God's election and call uh, of Israel and Israel's response to the gospel with a doxology of praise in Romans chapter 11. And uh, in, verses, in verses 33 through 36. And I'd like to begin this evening by, by reading those verses. Verse 33 through 36, the doxology of praise uh, that, uh, that pours forth, pours out of the Apostle Paul uh, on, uh, uh, as uh, he came to the end of uh, this, uh, these, of Romans chapter 11. All the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord, and who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him, and it shall be repaid to him? For of him, and through him, and to him are all things, to whom, to whom be glory forever. Amen. Well, this, uh, this hymn of praise to God, uh, is, uh, it seems to me, is a fitting uh, conclusion to that extensive exposition in Romans 9, 10, 11 in relation to uh, Israel's place in, uh, in, in the arrangement of things as it relates to the gospel of Christ. Um, and I, I feel that this is also uh, this hymn of praise, this uh, what I call the doxology of praise, is also a fitting response to the exposition of the doctrine of our salvation that you have in the first eight chapters of the book of Romans, and especially a fitting uh, doxology of praise to, to Romans chapter 8. Uh, so here in this doxology of praise, you notice that the Apostle Paul uh, is standing in awe of God. And I'm reminded, I'm reminded of Psalm, I, I believe it's chapter 4 and verse 1, that says we should stand in awe of God. In fact, it, what it really says is stand in awe of God and sin not. The two really do go together. And so, but to stand in awe of God, and, and so here uh, Paul is standing in these, uh, by giving this doxology of praise, 
is standing in awe of God. Um, and, and here, uh, so that's, that's important. You know, we must uh, never let our theology make us proud. Uh, spiritual pride is obnoxious to God. Uh, and so our, our, our theology, what we believe about God and our salvation, could cause us, should cause us to stand in awe of God. It should cause us to worship God. Notice, I would just like to notice uh, very briefly, um, as briefly as I can, uh, the, uh, the, uh, a few things about this doxology of praise. First of all, he says, Oh, the depths of the riches. Oh, the depths of the riches. How unsearchable uh, are, are his ways. Uh, uh, how is unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. You know, uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 10, Paul speaks of the deep things of God that God wants to reveal to us by His Spirit. And those things that He can only reveal to us by His Spirit that don't come out of our own uh, intellectual uh, understanding of things. But this expression of the unsearchableness of God's ways does, does not mean that uh, we uh, should stop exploring, even though they're unsearchable, meaning we, we never come to the understanding of the full depth of them, uh, but it should not uh, keep us from contemplating the unsearchable riches because, uh, you know, part of the uniqueness uh, of man has to do with the fact that we are created in the likeness and image of God. And one of the characteristics of being created in the image of God has to do with our ability to think and reason in, in both concrete and in abstract terms. Uh, this ability to think and reason and learn incre increase in knowledge and wisdom, I believe, deeply enriches us in our lives, and especially as it relates to God and the things of God. So, uh, uh, I, I would encourage us uh, to keep contemplating uh, the unsearchable riches. And, uh, and then he talks, note the phrase that he says, the depth, he talks about the depth of the riches of the knowledge and the wisdom of God. You see, uh, as far as uh, uh, I understand this, to mean that the depth of the riches speaks of the inexhaustible fullness as well as the profundity of God's wisdom and knowledge. And then he talks about the unsearchableness of God's judgments and His ways. Um, you know that uh, God's judgments have to do with the decrees that are, uh, that are judicially given to us. Uh, God's commandments, in other words, are part of His judicial decrees. Uh, these judicial decrees are often beyond our ability to fully comprehend the, uh, the purpose and the meaning of them. But these, these judicial decrees, these commandments of God that God gives us, that call for our obedience, even if we don't fully understand the whys and the wherefores of them, they do call for our obedience to them. His ways past finding out. Uh, you know, these, uh, these phrases just seem so rich and, uh, and meaningful uh, to us. Uh, should, should be that way. 
there are three searching questions in verses 34 and 35 when he says, Who has fully known or comprehended the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has done anything to make God uh, obligated to him? And then he goes on to say, Of him and through him and to him. Verse 36. Um, of him, through him, and through him. Be glory forever. You know, this reminds me that God is the source, the first cause of everything good. He sustains and maintains all things. And he is the object for which everything was created. Everything is designed to bring glory to him. You know, my prayer is that uh, the, uh, the Holy Spirit might reveal to us something of the enormity of who God really is. Because only as we stand in awe of God are we prepared to give ourselves in total consecration to Him. Then that becomes spontaneous to us. I believe that uh, this doxology of praise gives impetus to this call in Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, to give ourselves totally in total consecration to God. Now, I'm sure that Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 is very familiar to you. I have no doubt about that. And uh, you can probably uh, uh, give it by memory. And so I'm, I'm going to ask you, I'm, I'm not even going to read it, but I'm going to ask us to stand and, and, uh, and do these two verses together. So would you stand with me? And uh, let's, uh, let's uh, uh, give by memory uh, this, uh, uh, these two verses. Uh, I beseech you, therefore, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be it transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you might prove that what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You may be seated. It's with this call, verses 1 and 2 of Romans chapter 12, uh, that, um, that, that uh, Paul calls us, to full and total consecration. And it's with this call that Paul begins the practical section of the book of Romans. You see, theology for Paul is, was, was never some lofty intellectual or, or philosophical uh, concept that is somehow disassociated with life. The things we believe, not necessarily the the things we say we believe, but the things that we actually believe deeply impact us on the level of our practical daily living. That's a given. And, and so Paul comes to us with, with this challenge uh, to total and, and, and full consecration to God. And, and so uh, I, my, my desire this evening is to, to sort of take these two verses apart with the help of the Holy Spirit and then put them back together again. And I hope this can be, this can be new and fresh to you uh, this evening. That's my desire. And note that Paul 
doesn't command, nor uh, does he instruct necessarily, but he appeals here. He said, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, verse 1. Here Paul makes an earnest appeal to our spiritual sensitivities. He doesn't use his authority as an apostle here. He could have spoken with the authority of an apostle, because he was one. But he comes alongside of us as a brother here, and, and appeals to us and says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, as your brother, I beseech you that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. See, therefore, here is an often used word by Paul. Here it is used to reflect the reason why one who is made right with God should be totally consecrated to God. The appeal is based on the mercies of God. It's based on all that God has done to bring about our redemption through Christ. You see, we cannot be truly recipients of God's amazing grace, God's much more salvation that Paul talked about in, in Romans chapter 5, if you remember that. And we can't have our lives changed by the power of the gospel and remain passive toward God. I hear Paul saying in, in this first phrase that that's an impossibility. So I beseech you, therefore, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. And so, yes, here, notice that uh, here, here in, in, these, uh, in, in these two verses, we are given three imperatives that define uh, what total consecration to God really looks like. An imperative is, has the force of a command. So here we're given three imperatives, three commands, as it were. And, and so um, uh, note these three things about about these imperatives. Uh, and so the first imperative that, imperative that he gives, it says, I beseech you therefore by the mercies of God that, that you present your bodies. So that's the first imperative. Present your bodies to, to God as a living sacrifice. Present your bodies. You see, the Greek word for body here is, is soma. And that, that, that means our physical body. Uh, you know, in, in our unregenerate state, our physical bodies were instruments of unrighteousness, as Paul said it in chapter 6 and verse 13. Our, our, uh, our physical body was the medium, in other words, through which the flesh, and as you remember, the word, the word for flesh, as it's used in Romans 7 and 8, is dark, which, uh, which, indicate, which has an indication toward our, our sinful nature, uh, the, the sinful propensity that, that are, are, are with, within us, even after we've been experienced the power of the gospel in our lives. 
And so, uh, so here, uh, that, that's the sarx that uh, is, is expressed, expresses itself even through our physical body. And, and, and we recognize the fact that even in our, even in our regenerate state, our physical body still retains sinful desires and impulses that sometimes scream to us to have them fulfilled. I don't know if, if, if you can identify with that or not, but I want to tell you that as an 80-year-old, that still happens to me. Can you understand that? This physical body becomes a medium that uh, our our sinful propensity through which our sinful propensity expresses itself. So the inspired word here in Romans chapter twelve and verse one tells us to present these bodies, these physical bodies, to God. Dedicate and yield your physical bodies to God. We need to see that our physical bodies stand in lieu of, as well, and stand in lieu of, and, and I mean in proxy of, or uh, for our whole self. You know what I mean? So, in other words, my body represents me as well. My whole self. Because we, we really can't uh, very well separate my body from myself. It's an integral part of, of who I am. Body, soul, spirit. So my body represents me. And so this is really a call to consecrate my whole self to God. Not just my body, but consecrate my whole self to God. Now notice it, it, the, the, uh, uh, Paul says that we should present our bodies as a living sacrifice. Here Paul uses terminology that alludes to an Israelite bringing a thank offering to God in the Old Testament. You see, a thank offering was an offering that a worshiper brought to the temple in gratitude for what God had done for him. A thank offering was given in lieu of one offering it, in essence saying through bringing this offering, here I am, I'm giving myself to you, I am dedicating myself to you to serve you in gratefulness for your goodness to me. You know, Romans chapter 12, verse 1, doesn't call us to bring a lamb or any such thing. It does call us to present our bodies to God, to dedicate our whole selves to God in gratefulness. This is, this is actually deeply personal to each one of us. Or it should be. You see, a thank offering in the Old Testament sacrificial system was to be a burnt offering, which meant that it was to be totally consumed upon the altar. And so, uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 1, calls us to bring not a, a dead animal, 
but it, to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. There's a difference. <laughs> to present our bodies as a living sacrifice implies that we consecrate ourselves to God in such a way so as to actively engage ourselves in doing God's will in our everyday lives. And this is why this is the beginning of Paul's practical section of theology here in the Book of Romans. Notice that in the third place here that a living sacrifice is holy and acceptable to God is really our reasonable service. Paul said then, you know, offering your body to God as a living sacrifice sets your body apart as holy. It is now dedicated to the service of God. And, and Paul says here that with such a sacrifice, God is well pleased. It is an acceptable sacrifice to God. In other words, such dedication of our bodies to God is, accept, is an acceptable act of worship. The German translates this way. Uh, it says it is our Gottesdienst. Uh, anybody understand the German? Our Gottesdienst, which means our an act of worship <laughs> to God. That's what it is. You see, from the perspective of the divine logic, Presenting our bodies to God as a living sacrifice is a reasonable, logical response to what He has done for saving us. We don't pay it in that way, but it's a, a logical response to His redemption uh, through the blood of Jesus. Now, that was, that was the first uh, imperative. Present your bodies. That's the first imperative. The, the first command, if you please. The, the second imperative here uh, comes out of uh, verse 2, the beginning of verse 2, where it says, And be not conformed to this world. Please note again that the second imperative helps us to understand what a life looks like that is fully consecrated to God. Notice two things about this imperative from the first phrase of Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Be not conformed to this world. The, the word conformed here is an interesting one. You know, the Greek word translated conformed is, it's a long word. I, I don't, I'm, I'm going to really uh, botch it up. I'm trying to, to even pronounce it, but I'll try, okay? I, I, I botch other things up as well, so it's okay. And an 80-year-old can do that and get by with it. So, uh, so the best I can do on this word is sus je matiso. Sus je matiso. If you would see the word spelled, the Greek word spelled, then, then you could see that, that within this word is the word schematic. You know what a schematic is? Yeah, a blueprint, a schematic. Okay? So, within this word you, you, is, is the word schematic. Uh, and uh, the word means to fashion a life. 
to have the same schematics, the same pattern, the same blueprints. The word, yes, so one translation uh, did a, uh, translated this way, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. Well, that, that, says, that says it in, in one way, but it doesn't give the whole intent of, of this word. The, the, and, and the other thing that I make us aware of here is that, that the Greek word for uh, conform, and, and it, uh, again, it's imperative, says don't be conformed, be not conformed to this world, is that the Greek word uh, means to not fashion oneself in the same way outwardly. I'm, I'm sorry, but that's there. <laughs> And so, um, yes, so it has to do, the, the implication is don't fashion yourself in the, with the same schematic outwardly. And now, notice that he, uh, he, he also, he says, be not conformed to this world. Um, the Greek word for world here is aeon, A-I-O-N. Aeon has to do with age, with the age that we're living in, in other words. Aeon doesn't necessarily refer only to the time period we're living in, but to the, the system, the world system that we are living in. See, Galatians chapter 1 and verse 4 talks about this present evil world. The word is aeon. The present evil age, in other words. The implication of Romans 12, 2 is that we are not to outwardly fashion ourselves to the world system, to the culture, the lifestyle of the world we're living in. Please note that this is a clear call, I believe, to live counter-culturally. The values and the lifestyle of one who has been regenerated by the Holy Spirit are so totally incongruous. They are so totally incompatible with that of this world for two reasons. Number one, it's, one reason is because Satan, the prince of darkness, is the god of this world. Second Corinthians 4.4 4 indicates that he influences the culture of this world. Secondly, it's indisputable that we're living in the midst of a culture that is described in Romans chapter 1, verse 18 to 32. I, I don't know if you remember that description, that list of 32 sins that Paul uses to describe uh, the, the, the Gentile world that, that uh, is in, in reprobation before God. But it is, it is characterized as an idolatrous and as a wicked and as a, as a depraved and immoral world. And so, uh, 
Do not be conformed to this aeon, this world. This, and, and so it's a call to live counterculturally. Please, please take note again that the fact, of the fact that Romans chapter 12 calls us to live counterculturally, which means to live differently, not for the sake of being different, but because there is an inherent difference between us and the aeon in which we live. This doesn't only mean dress differently, but it calls us to a total different way of life, a total different lifestyle, because we live by a different schematic. Our blueprint for life is not the same. So that, that's the, the, the logic and the reason behind this, uh, this second uh, command. Some have taken what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 20 to 22. Where Paul says to the Jew, I became a Jew. To the, you know, to the Roman, I became a Roman. Uh, to those without law, I came without, as without law. And, and some have taken that and misinterpreted it to mean that they can ignore this injunction in Romans chapter 2, 12 and verse 2. And, and, uh, and, and I, I quote here, uh, C.R. Lenski in his commentary on, on Romans chapter 2. So it, we uh, take it as an injunction, as a, as a permission to what Lenski says when he says to allow us to howl a bit with the wolves, to do as the Romans do because we're in Rome while still holding fast to Christ. That's C.R. Lenski in his commentary on the book of Romans. And this is really incongruous with this injunction we have here in Romans chapter 12 and verse 2. Notice uh, the, uh, the, the third thing that Paul says here, the uh, third imperative that he gives us is, in, is, uh, is a positive imperative. When he goes on to say, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Be transformed. It's the positive imperative that answers to the negative imperative, be not conformed. This is not a suggestion. This is an imperative. It gives us the reason, the et. It's a Latin phrase to mean the reason for. Yes, the, log- the logical reason for being not conformed to this world. The word transformed is derived from the word metamorphosis. How many of you recognize the word metamorphosis? Yes. Uh, metamorphosis. Uh, the, the, the Greek word is, is very similar to that. It's metamorpho. Uh, and uh, metamorphosis describes that, that total dynamic change that transforms the caterpillar into a butterfly. Now, Greek scholars tell us that this imperative to be transformed uh, refers to a dynamic interchange that will powerfully impact us outwardly in the way we live. 
they, they tell us that the grammatical structure of this, exhort- this exhortation uh, has three uh, has three things to us. Uh, yes, I again remind you that the Holy Spirit uh, communicates according to the rules of proper grammar. Um, if you wouldn't, we'd be in trouble. We couldn't properly interpret the, the word. So the Holy Spirit communicates according to the rules of proper grammar. And yes, I know that sometimes I butcher the English language because Pennsylvania Dutch was really my first mother tongue. But uh, listen to the three things that Greek scholars tell us about uh, this injunction be transformed. The uh, number one, the injunction is given in the present tense. This means that this transformation isn't a one-time process, but rather it is a continuous, ongoing process. In other words, the, uh, you could transliterate it in this way by saying, "Be being transformed." It's an ongoing process. It's not a one-time process. The the second uh, thing that uh, uh, the, um, the the grammatical structure here tells us about this phrase, "be transformed," is that the word the verb "transformed" is used in the passive voice. This implies that I don't do the transforming, but that I am being acted upon by the Holy Spirit. And so it is the, the power of the Spirit that really does the transform for me. I don't do the transforming. I can't change myself. And the third thing that this implies, that the verb, the verb transform is also given in the imperative mood. I, I realize I'm being very technical here. I, I hope you're okay with that. Um, it's, it's given in the imperative mood. This means that we are not to be completely passive as it relates to this metamorphose. In other words, we must invite and we must cooperate and give ourselves to this process of spiritual transformation. It's really, it's, 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 uh, it, Paul gives it in, in, a, in, a, in another way in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 13, when he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And then he goes on to say, For it is God who, who, who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So you have it said in a, in a different way, in, 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 but it's really saying the same thing. Now, uh, finally, I, I would like to, uh, to notice uh, the, uh, the means that the Holy Spirit uses to transform us, as he's referring to it here, Romans chapter 12, verse 2. So he says in verse 2, 
let me let me just quote the verse, the, the two verses again. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. Here we're told what initiates this spiritual dynamic change. What causes this inner metamorphosis that causes us to be incongruous, incongruous and incompatible with the the aeon, the, the, the world culture we live in, but are not part of because we live by a different schematic? It's because of the renewing of the minds. Inner transformation takes place by the renewing of the minds. I don't have to tell you that the mind has to do with that mental faculty by which we think, reason, and imagine. Many commentators insist that when Paul speaks concerning the mind here in Romans 12, too, he's not only referring to the mental faculty, but he's referring to the whole inner disposition of the human personality. However true that may be, I'm going to focus my attention on the importance of having our, our minds, our mental faculties, by which we think, reason, and imagine being renewed, because having our mind renewed is key to being not conformed to this world and is key to being transformed. Proverbs 23 and verse 7 says, As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. So the faculty of the mind is, is, is the wellspring out of which springs a man's thoughts, deeds, and actions. Really. So, so the faculty of the mind needs to be renewed. It needs to be reprogrammed, if you please, which will in turn transform us deeply within, and that in turn will cause us to live differently than the world, the world which lives out of a reprobate mind. As you remember, it tells us in Romans chapter 1 and verse 28. So in the final analysis of things, in order to be truly nonconformed to the world system, we are that we are living in, we must think differently. Did you hear me? We must think differently. Otherwise, our nonconformity is merely superficial and meaningless. We must think differently. Yes? We must think differently. You get it? <laughs> to put it succinctly, what Romans 12, 2 is saying is, be not outwardly conformed to this world, but be inwardly transformed by having your mind renewed. Now, the question to be asked 
in conclusion here this evening, how is the mind renewed? Well, there are two scriptures that come to mind. And uh, one of them is Titus chapter 3 and verse 5, which speaks of the watching of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. See, a renewed mind flows out of a regenerated heart and is empowered by the Holy Spirit. Ephesians, the other, the, the other verse is Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 27, which refers to the, the washing of the water of the Word. Now, I remember the story Remember the story. I, I don't know if I, I told this story to you uh, last year in, in some context uh, or not. But uh, an old man can repeat his story. It's okay. <laughs> so so uh, I'll go ahead and do it. Um, but I, I remember the story of how uh, a missionary was working with a tribal group of people. And uh, uh, there were some of those people who had been been transformed by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, as it tells us in Romans chapter one and, and verse sixteen. But uh, one day, one of these men, whose lives whose life had been changed, came to the missionary to this man of God, and said that he is he is he's struggling with something. He's He's bothered by something. He said he's bothered by the fact that that the, where the Word of God had been translated into his language, and so he could read the Word of God, but he was bothered by the fact that in the morning when he opens the Word of God and reads it, and then he closes the book and, and goes out about his, his daily activity, that, that he forgets what he read. And, and so, uh, so he was concerned about this. So the, 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 the missionary, the, the man of God, saw there was a, a weed basket laid out there beside him. And so he said to this man, take this weed basket and go down to the river and bring me a basket full of water. Now, am I referring that our minds are like a weed basket? Well, mine is sometimes. But so the man, of, the, the, this, uh, this, this believer took the, the reed basket, went down to the river, and dipped the basket into the river uh, and, and, and pulled it out and went back to the man of God. And, but you know what happened when he got there, the water was all gone. So the, so the man of God said, Go do it again. And so the man goes down to the river, dips the basket into the river. And comes running back to the the uh, the man of God, but sure enough, by the time he got there, the water had all filtered out. And so he said to him, "Go do it again." And so this man went down to the river, and he ran back to the man of God as fast as he could run, with his grease basket full of water. And again, sure enough. 
by the time he got there, the, the water had all drained out. And so the man of God says, do you see a difference in the basket? And the man of God says, yes, it's clean. So never mind that you often forget exactly what you read. But I want to assure you that, that the, the, the power of the Word of God is this, that by reading and meditating upon the Word of God, it has a way of washing and, and renewing the mind, even if you don't retain it all. I'm sure that when you walk out of this building tonight, you won't remember everything I said. But that's okay. Because I'm confident that by you sitting here and, and hearing the Word of God, that's a way of washing and renewing and regenerating the body. That you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Here we're given the grand effect of a mind that is being renewed by the Spirit of God and by the Word of God. This renewed mind will put you in tune with the moral will of God. There's no doubt about that. It will sensitize you to what is good. Paul says, acceptable and perfect before God. In other words, the renewed mind will cause you to approve. The, the verse says in, in the King James that you may approve that which is good and acceptable and the perfect will of God. The word prove really has the implication of approve. So a renewed mind will approve the moral will of God. It will approve of what God says is true, whether you like it or not. It will cause you to say, Amen to God and to His ways. And like David in Psalm 119.32, it will cause you to run the way of His commandments. Isn't that an interesting expression? I, I find some Christians run the other way from God's commandments, the opposite direction. But David said, I run in the way of God's commandments. A renewed mind will transform your life and conform it to God's will and will consequently cause you to be in conflict. Yes, it will cause you to be in conflict with the cultural norms of this present evil age. Amen. 
bless you as you consider these things and may cause you to be totally and fully consecrated. Amen.